My name is Ardalis Green. Welcome to Grace. We're glad you're here. I know we're getting close to the hunting season, for some of you who are hunters. And a man went out hunting for bear. He uh, wanted to get ready for the hunt, so he got his gun loaded, and the bear came into sight. He's just about to pull the trigger, and the bear turned around and said, isn't it better to talk to one another than to shoot? Let's negotiate the matter. The bear says, what is it that you want? And the man said, well, I want a touch of fur coat. The bear said, well, now we're getting somewhere. Let's talk more about this. The bear said to the man, uh, to the, the man said to the bear, this is a real story, by the way. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the, man, the man said to the bear, he said, what, is, what did you want? He says, well, I want a full stomach. Well, <clears throat> the, uh, the bear said, well, just set down your gun for a while. So here, touch my coat. And so the man touched the bear's fur coat. And then they disappeared for a while into the woods. And a few minutes later, the bear appeared alone. The negotiations, according to the bear, were successful. See, the bear got a full stomach, and the man touched a fur coat. And that's how compromise always works. You always lose. Recently, um, General Motors negotiated some things with the United Auto Workers. They had to compromise because there's necessary compromises to be made between parties on opposite sides. Just like in marriage, you have to compromise to have peace in the house. But there's a different kind of compromise the Bible speaks to of compromising your principles. So I want to speak to you this morning about compromise. Revelation chapter 2, the church at Pergamum. Most of you here um, at one time were a college student, and we have many college students here and high school students, and they have many choices to make about the classes, right, they're going to take. But then there's an ethical decision about whether I'm going to do my work or borrow someone else's work. There's choices about what I'm going to do in my dorm, who's going to get to come over to my dorm. There's choices about social life as to who I'm going to hang out with and what I'm going to do there. You see, there's always choices about compromise. Some of you here are in business. And how many times in business are we tempted to compromise? Imagine you're on a business trip and everybody's going out to the bar. They want to go to Hooters because they like the wings. Tell me, you're going to go? <laughs> we say, I don't do Hooters. Well, you're going to go or you're going to stay back? What are the circumstances in your life where you feel pressured to compromise what is right? We're living in a culture where less and less couples are getting married. More and more couples are living together. To you who are unmarried, would you move in with your partner before you're married? Why or why not? Singles increasingly are being pressured to compromise what is right. We're living in a culture that basically all states now have no-fault divorce. You can pretty much get a divorce for any reason you want in America. A woman makes her vows. She says she believes that marriage is for life until she's unhappy. She confides to her friend, you know, I'm really unhappy in my marriage. I'm thinking about getting divorced. 
And a friend says to her, you should do whatever makes you happy. A parent says, parent believes homosexuality is wrong until their child comes out. Then they begin to look for a tolerant, inclusive church. Now, we believe that we should unconditionally accept and love all people. Acceptance means I love you as you are. It doesn't mean I agree with everything you do. We're being called to compromise. As I prayed about this, I prayed, am I going to speak the truth to you all or compromise with this message? So I'm trying to be uncompromisingly truthful to you about what the Bible teaches about compromise. Because I really believe, this is what I really believe. I believe the church needs to have a firm center, a core conviction of what we believe, that this is right and this is wrong, but on the edges to be soft, to be compassionate toward those who differ with us. Not hard, but loving toward people, but firm in the middle because of truth. Most of us here have vacation and sick leave. There's times when you want to leave a little early, so is it okay to call in sick when you want to leave a day early for vacation? All of us here go to restaurants, right? The waiter will charge us for what we order on, you know, from the menu. But what if they fail to charge you for an appetizer? Would you tell the waiter you forgot something on the bill? Now, we're very sure to make sure our coupons are included in the charge. But how about when they forget to charge us for something? We're in this series on Revelation called Strengthen and Clarify. The first church we came to was a church at Ephesus, and it was an awesome church. They were apostolic. They were hardworking, even to the point of exhaustion. They were persevering. They were enduring. They were even putting out the false apostles. But they had one problem in Ephesus, remember? They had left, forsaken their first love. They had moved away from God and what God's perspective on life was to really love. Then we moved on to the second church last week, the church at Smyrna, the suffering church. It was, I said then that uh, the suffering was like being crushed. And as they were being crushed, they were emitting this beautiful fragrance. The devil believed that he could stop the church by basically killing the Christians. Now, we know the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And Jesus, Jesus told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But is that what the church did? The answer is no. They stayed in Jerusalem, remember? And in Jerusalem, they became a little holy huddle. And then came along the persecution, Saul hunting down the Christians. And what did the church do then? They scattered. And as they scattered, they preached the gospel. And as they preached, they were persecuted. You see, persecution didn't weaken the church. It only strengthened the church. The devil's plan kind of blew up in his face. So this morning we come to the third church in Revelation, the church at Pergamum. Now, see, what's happening here is the devil is changing his strategy. At Smyrna, he was bringing persecution, trying to stop the movement of the church. Now what happens is his tactic is infiltration and imitation. The devil's attitude is if you can't beat them, we'll just join them. 
You remember the, the parable of the wheat and the tares? The farmer planted his crop as wheat, and the enemy overnight planted the wheat, the tares, the weeds. Initially, the wheat and the tares look alike until the harvest. Jesus is revealing here a satanic tactic. It's called infiltration, imitation, joining the ranks. You see, in the cults, many look like Christians, many sound like Christians, they appear to be Christians, but over time we discover they really weren't Christians at all. One of the groups that, that utilizes this infiltration strategy is the Muslims. You will see one of the great trends in the world is the Islamification of Europe, of how they have infiltrated in places like England and France. It's estimated that in the year 2040, 80% of France will be Muslim. It begins with students and um, teachers, professors, professionals, shopkeepers moving into an area. Then they begin to enter the public arena, you know, stepping into political office. And before long, they've infiltrated military, government, education. The objective is to implement the law of Sharia wherever they are. It's true that when something is successful, what will happen is there will always be an imitation. Christianity is very successful, right? And there will always be an imitation of Christianity. I mean, if you like an iPhone or a Rolex watch or a coach purse, all you have to do is go to New York City to Chinatown, where you'll find there the knockoff, right? I remember once seeing Steve Jobs introducing the iPhone. And there was this iPhone in this glass display. And there was a security guard standing beside the iPhone. And it was slowly rotating around as people looked at the iPhone. And there was a crowd gathering. And I said, why don't people just get out and worship this iPhone? You see, what happens is when anything is moving forward, there's always this imitation, infiltration. And what's happening in this church at Pergamum, which is happening in the church in America, is an infiltration. So let's talk for a moment about the church at Pergamum, okay? It was the capital city of Asia built on a rocky hill. And the Aegean Sea could be seen on a clear day. The, the hillside of it was where these temples were built. Pergamum was a cultural center, known for its vast library of over 200,000 scrolls on parchment. Now, parchment was made out of animal skin, and each one of these scrolls was written by hand. Antony, as a gift to Cleopatra, gave her these 200,000 scrolls. You could say Richard Burton gave it to Elizabeth Taylor. Pergamum had this huge altar to Zeus. Zeus was the god of the gods. It was the largest altar of all, shaped like a giant throne room. So if you looked up on the hillside of Pergamum, you could see this temple to Zeus with this big altar on top of it with a giant throne. Also, Pergamum had other gods like Escapuleus, known for the god of healing. This god is pictured, if you look at medical uh, insignia, the snake, you know, that wraps itself around a pole, that is a reference to this God. The snake slithered on the ground, and the supplicant would lie on the floor, hoping the snakes would slither over them, giving them healing. Pergamum also was a Caesar worship city. Caesar Augustus had a temple here. And also one last God, Dionysius, God of Bacchus, the God of drunkenness and lewdness. Now, what would Jesus say to the church at Pergamum? Here we go. Revelation chapter 2 Verse number 12. To the angel 
of the church in Pergamum, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. First of all, as he begins this address to the church at Pergamum, he identifies himself as him who has the double-edged sword. Sounds a little bit ominous, doesn't it? A man holding a double-edged sword is like a warrior going to battle, fighting for his bride. Such is the deep, deep love of Jesus that he is fighting for his beloved. A thief is creeping into his house, and he's unsheathing his sword so as to protect her. It reminds us of the words of Hebrews, which says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Jesus is wielding the sword here to protect his church. Him who knows where you live. He says, I know everything about your city. I know about those 200,000 scrolls. I know about the altar to Zeus. I know about the worship of Escapolis. I know about this temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus. I know everything about your city. He says, this is a city where Satan's throne is. You see, the devil is not yet in hell. The devil will go to hell. But this is a place where the devil has set up his camp and his demons are doing his biddings. Let me try to contrast at the beginning just God and the enemy. God is omnipotent. He has all power. The devil does not have all power. God is omniscient. He knows all things. The devil doesn't know all things. God is omnipresent, but the devil is not everywhere. The devil can only be one place at one time. And this is where he had set up his camp. But can we agree that there are certain cities that seem to be more wicked than other cities? I've mentioned to you before how I feel when I drive over to Baltimore. I just feel the darkness. I feel the hopelessness. I mean, even though there's some of the best hospitals in the world, I feel the spiritual oppression of Baltimore. There's Las Vegas, right? There's cities that are renowned for their wickedness. They tend to celebrate their sin. The devil has a foothold. We say in Vegas, what happens in Vegas? Come on now. You've never heard this before, that what happens in Vegas state, why would that be? Well, they tried to change their image of being a family-friendly city, but didn't quite work, did it? So what happens in Vegas kind of stays in Vegas. There's spiritual darkness there. I believe there's certain cities in America where there's a darkness, where you see young girls being involved in sex trafficking, luring young men into gangs, tempting kids to use heroin on the streets, students shooting students in their schools. There's this spirit of lawlessness, this spirit of darkness in our land, you see. And that's what he's trying to say there about this city. Well, he makes some complimentary commendations to them. First of all, They remain true to his name. Do you see that in verse number 13? Yet you have remained true to my name. I see your temptations, but you remain true to my name. I see the brokenness of your city, but you've not forsaken me. I see the temptations that you deal with, but you've not fallen to them. You're loyal, committed, steadfast. And they did not renounce their faith in Jesus. Even though there's this temptation in our culture, their culture, to go with the flow, you did not renounce your faith. I see the threats placed upon you. 
I see how they tried to intimidate you and how you're tempted to compromise, yet you did not renounce your faith. God wants us to stand true, to not renounce our faith, to not deny his name. And then he speaks of the martyr. Jesus is fully aware of the pressures, temptations, the challenges we face. And there was a man whose name there, whose name was Antipas. And he wouldn't say that Caesar is Lord. Now, Antipas means against all. Against all that was evil in his culture, Antipas stood firm. He says, I know where you're living. It's a place of darkness where there's a hostile environment. Maybe you're the only believer really in the environment where you work or perhaps even in your home. You're just kind of always under constant attack. You have to stand up like Antipas did, like Polycarp did, like Rachel Scott did. Remember her in Columbine? Student, two students were shooting other students left and right, and they walked up to Rachel Scott. She was a very strong believer, strong in her faith and in her youth group. And they, she'd been shot twice in her leg and once in her torso. And she was asked, do you believe in God? Now, what would you have done if you had been Rachel Scott? You know, the students had killed other students. You know what they're going to do. And they said to her, do you believe in God? And Rachel said, you know I do. And the shooter said, well, then go be with him. And she was shot in the head. I believe that Rachel Scott was a martyr. That she died for her faith. You see... She did not renounce her faith. She remained true to Jesus, and she, her blood was shed there on that school floor. But there are some corrections that God wants to bring to this church, some corrections he wants to bring to us. He says, I have a few things against you. You see that in verse 14? I have a few things against you. Now, remember, Jesus teaches us that when you're going to bring correction, you always want to say the hard thing. You always want to say something affirmative first. So first of all, he affirms the church, but now he's going to bring correction to the church. The truth is that Jesus will tell it to you straight. He does not coddle his church. He loves us too much to lie to us. Jesus is saying, I have a few things I want you to know. Number one, the false teaching of the Nicolaitans has crept into the church. This must have been a widespread heresy because he said, remember to the Ephesians, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Some of them in Pergamum were of the cult of the Nicolaitans. Jesus is telling them to not live a compromised life. Nicholas was one of the seven chosen to be a deacon in the early church. Nicholas had strayed from the faith and become apostate, and his influence was strong. And the people believed he must be telling us the truth. He was one of the original guys. He learned it from the apostles. Well, Nicholas gave out false teaching, and he had his followers. Nicholas said, even though you live in a pagan culture, it's okay to say Caesar is Lord. It's okay to engage in immorality. It's okay to compromise. It's okay to worship idols. After all, your sins are forgiven. Your position is secure. I mean, you, you Christians need to relax. I mean, you're just not any fun. 
You quote from your Bibles. You don't do what you used to do. You, <laughs> you can have a few drinks. with. What's a little harmless flirtation? What's the problem with just a few drinks after hours? What's wrong with just being with some of the opposite sex for dinner? You see, here's the problem. Small things turn into big things. And these little compromises that come into our life turn into bigger compromises. It's like if you've got a little bunny in your house, someday that little bunny is going to become a big bunny. And that little bunny that does little poops will do be a big bunny that does big poops. It's going to be a big problem someday because that bunny's going to grow up and you know the rest. <laughs> what I'm talking about is compromise. I'm talking about the compromises that come into our life. Here's an illustration of compromise. Samson. Mm. Judges 16, if you want to turn there. Samson. It says, one day... Samson went to Gaza, which was an important seaport town. What is Samson going to do in Gaza? Samson went and spent the night with a prostitute. Hmm. The lust of his eyes, the lust of the flesh combined to have a grip upon Samson. If you look back upon his life, when he's just starting out, God called him to deliver, to save his people from the Philistines. He saw a woman and he said, get her for me, for she looks good to me. <laughs> Mom, dad said, Samson, this girl doesn't read her Bible. She doesn't pray. She doesn't know the Lord. She's an unbeliever. He said, you don't know her like I know her. And so his life of compromise began early in his life. And now in his latter years, he is still compromising himself. You see, these compromises move us closer and more into darkness and destruction. You could say his judgment is impaired because compromise after compromise, his life was in great danger. Then he met a girl whose name was Delilah. Now, Delilah means devotee, and she was most likely a temple prostitute. The Philistine leaders said to her, offered her a sum of money if she would entice Samson and learn the source of his great strength. So Delilah has Samson on her lap and says, tell me the secret of your great strength. Samson, so I can tie you up and seduce you. Now, you know you're in a messed up relationship. <laughs> when somebody says to you, tell me the secret of your great strength so I can afflict you. I want to bring affliction into your life. So, <laughs> so um, Samson, tell me the strength of this. Tell me the secret of great strength. So Samson toys with her. He says, if anybody ties me up with seven bowstrings, I'll become as weak as any man. And he falls asleep on her lap. And she says, the Philistines are upon you. And he breaks the strings. Then she says, 
Samson, you made a fool of me. You lied to me. Tell me how I can tie you up. And he says, well, tie me with a new rope. And, she's, and, he's, and she ties him up and falls asleep. And she says, the Philistines are upon you. And he sna snaps the rope like thread. She says, you've been lying to me a long time. Now tell me your secret. He says, well, tie my hair in braids. That'll work. I'll lose all my strength. He falls asleep. She ties him up. She says, the Philistines are upon you. And he breaks free. And then it says, and Delilah said, you don't love me. You've never loved me. Now she's working him. She says, if you really love me, you tell me your secret. Tell me your secret. And she nagged him and nagged him and nagged him for three days. The Bible says it's better to live in the corner of a roof than with a contentious woman. And Samson learned this. This woman just kept nagging him and nagging him until he gave up the secret of his great strength. Samson tells her his secret. And when she shaves his head, he loses his strength. Samson sees taking a Nazarite vow. He's never to cut his hair. His strength was not in his hair. His strength was in his relationship with his God. And the Spirit of God would come upon Samson. And then he would have this great power in his life. But when his hair was shaved off, he was taken captive and his eyes were gouged out and he was a slave. That's how sin works. That's how compromise works. You think you can handle it, but you can't. You see, either you will kill the sin in your life or that sin will kill you. How do affairs start? We get interested in spending time with somebody who is not our spouse. They work with us. Maybe it's an old flame from the past. We see an attraction in this person. They reciprocate. The attraction deepens. Then we spend extra time getting ready to see them, right? Fixing up our hair, looking good, smelling good. Then we spend time thinking about this person. See, we then begin to flirt with them, this playful banter, this conversation. Then the compromise moves us closer to an affair. We begin fantasizing about being unfaithful. And when people bring up this issue of you're married, we say, we're just friends. Affairs start with little compromise, compromise after compromise after compromise until we justify the behavior that we wouldn't even have considered earlier. When we make enough compromises, you see, we will do things we never thought possible. There was a young man, he was a sailor, and he was stationed on a, on a, on a base in a tropical island. So he wrote home to his wife. He said, man, the place is beautiful. The island is beautiful. The fruit is beautiful. The waves are beautiful. And the women are beautiful. And I'm feeling pretty tempted She wrote back to say, you know, I love you, and I'll be waiting for you. But whenever you're tempted, whenever temptation comes in your life, I want you to play and practice this harmonica I'm giving you. So she sent him a harmonica. And the year went by that he was stationed abroad, and he came home, and she was waiting for him there by the dock. And he came off the ship, and he says, honey, I just can't wait to see you. It's been a whole year. Let's just go on home. 
And she said, first, I want to hear you play the harmonica. <laughs> How's your harmonica? Can you play the harmonica? Or are you playing in another tune? You see, Samson wants to teach us that if you compromise, you're going to be blinded, binded, and grinding at the mill. There's one last thing about this story. He says, some of you have allowed the teaching of Balaam to come into your church. Balaam. You say, what's that, Pastor R.? Well, if you read in Numbers chapter 22 through 25, there was a wicked king of Moab whose name was Balak, who hired Balaam. Now, the king was very worried about the size of Israel, that they were basically going to destroy Moab. So the king hired Balaam to curse Israel. He didn't know, we don't know much about Balaam, but he seems to be a prophet for profit. A follow that. He's, he's for the money, okay? He's a prophet who basically has a personal gain, right? So what happens in this story, this is actually a funny story. You have to read this story sometime. It's humor in scripture. So what happens is Balaam gets on his donkey and he begins riding, you know, down to, you know, to curse the people. And um, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the road. And the donkey kind of wanders off the course. And uh, Balaam takes his stick and he beats the donkey. Well, he goes a little farther and now Jesus is standing in front of the donkey and the donkey kind of presses against the wall and crushes his leg. And then Balaam gets off his donkey and beats the donkey. And then a third time, the, Jesus appears to them and the donkey just sits right down on Balaam. And... And um, so the, bala- the donkey begins to talk to Jesus. You say, why did you tell that story about the bear? Well, this is a real story about a donkey talking. So <laughs> the donkey says to Balaam, he says, um, why have you beat me these three times? <laughs> Good question. Balaam says, because you don't do what I tell you to do. I tell you, like, you know, to, to go and you don't go. He said, if I had a sword, I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey, which you've always ridden on? Am I in the habit of, you know, doing these things? So they had this conversation. The donkey and Balaam are going back and forth. So what basically happens in the story is that Balaam can't curse Israel. He blesses Israel. But he says, I have another idea, chapter 25. Take the beautiful Moabite women entice the Israelite men into their tents, commit sexual immorality, introduce idolatry. Balaam got them to compromise. You see, what's happening in the story is Balaam induced the Israelite men to be with the Moabite women. And when they were with these women, they compromised and the the sexual immorality led into idolatry. They began to worship their gods. What would Jesus say to the church? Repent. Remove this false teaching that's all around you, right? Repent. This is the wake-up call. I wonder if I'm speaking to a compromising Christian. You know who you are because you're somewhat 
uncomfortable what I'm talking about. You've been lowering your guard, making compromises. And God wants to steer you in another direction. He says to the church, repent, or else I will fight with the sword, my sword against you. Jesus is zealous and jealous for his church. He wants his church to be pure. I want our church to be uncompromised. And he says, I got something for you. Here's two promises. First thing I will give you is manna. (laughs) You say, what's the manna, Pastor R? Well, every day they woke up outside their tents and there was this manna waiting for them, the bread, bread from heaven. And the Jews said to Jesus, you know, give us this manna from heaven. And Jesus said, I am the bread of God who came down from heaven. I am the bread of life. I am the manna of God. You see, if you'll repent, God will give you Jesus. And secondly, he'll give to you a white stone. You say, what's the white stone, Pastor? Well, the white stone was that which was given when someone was declared not guilty. It was an invitation to a feast. He's inviting us to the wedding supper of the feast, uh, wedding supper of the Lamb. You see, if you compromise, if you cross over the lines, God will forgive you. But there's always repercussions to those choices, right? Like, for instance, if you drive drunk, you'll get a DUI and you'll lose your license, but perhaps you'll find their forgiveness from a judge. We always reap what we sow. We always reap what we sow. With God, there's forgiveness, but God wants us to live a non-compromising life. God wants his church to be uncompromised, to be true. Pray with me. God in heaven, it's a strong word you're giving to the church at Pergamum, the church at Frederick, because we, just like they, live in a world where there's so much false teaching creeping in. We hear it in our talk shows. We see it in our movies. We hear it in our music. It's everywhere around us, this inducement into sin. There's the things we see on television that maybe don't trouble us anymore. There's compromises we made at work, violating our own principles. There's compromises we've made, Lord, in our relationships. You're a God who extends your hands to us and embraces your people and offers forgiveness. A God who would remove our sin as far as the east is from the west and empower your people, Lord, to fortify your people to be strong in the center, but soft on the edges. Forgive me, Lord, for my many uh, compromises of my life. For I am a sinner with many, many compromises. But you're a holy God and a merciful God. And you want to show your mercy to your people. You want to reveal your holiness to us. You want to show yourself to be the God who comes with a sword to pare away the moral compromises of our life. We would, Father, be sanctified. We would be more like your son, Jesus Christ, more empowered. Show us, Lord, the one area in our life where we really need to stop compromising. 
And Lord, help us to be obedient and to walk in that faithfulness. For you're a God who's worthy of everything we can offer to you. Meet your church where we are, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. The song comes from Revelation chapter 5 of uh, who's worthy to open the scroll. And there's only one who's the Lamb of God. It's also our King. Next week, we're going to look at the church at Thyatira. These churches get worse. This was the compromising church. We're going to talk about the corrupted church. You want to do some background reading. First Kings 17, 18, 19, talk about a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel's teaching has infiltrated the church. And so we're going to talk about that next week. Pray with me. God, we give you all glory and honor for you are the God who is able to open the scroll, the title deed to this earth, because you are so very, very worthy. Lord, would you enable us to live lives worthy of your kingdom, worthy of the calling we have received you enable us, Lord, to walk true to your name and not renounce our faith. May our lives shine for you, Lord, and help us to bring correction where necessary. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.